0: Welcome to Think Like an Owner, a show exploring how the most ambitious CEOs grow great companies. I'm your host, Alex Bridgman. Each week, I dive into the strategies and tactics that build transformative businesses with the operators doing it firsthand. You can learn more about the guests and the companies they are building by visiting us at tlaopodcast.com. There, you will also find our weekly newsletter that further analyzes how companies are finding success today. Lastly, if you enjoy Think Like an Owner, please share this podcast with Peter and leave us a review. My guest today, Mike Wyman, brings over 30 years of experience in various CFO roles to this episode where we dive into the CFO role, especially in newly acquired businesses with limited financial infrastructure. Today, Mike advises CEOs throughout the search fund ecosystem on making critical CFO hires and brings his experience to several boards as well. In our discussion, Mike outlines the CFO mentality and focus on constant improvement, what the various phases look like early in a new CEO's tenure with respect to finance, and advice for hiring your financial team. Please enjoy this fantastic episode with Mike Wyman. Every CEO and entrepreneur needs support from a team of expert professionals like attorneys, bankers, and accountants like Hood and Strong. Less often mentioned, but just as important, is insurance. And August Felker and his team at Oberly Risk Strategies are the experts you need on your team. To navigate the insurance needs of your company, as dozens of past podcast guests have partnered with them to do. Oberly helps you evaluate what your current and soon to be acquired company needs for insurance today, while also anticipating what it will need tomorrow. To get in touch, email August at august.felker at Oberly Risk.com or visit their website at Oberly Risk.com. And now for some advice and observations on insurance for small companies. Here's August himself to share his expertise on today's Q&A. So if I just acquired a company and I have a new accountant, a new lawyer, and a new insurance advisor, what's the best way to introduce those new vendors
1: to my current team or the new team that I just acquired? When a lot of our clients, they're in this mad dash to to buy the business, and they've got attorneys and their insurance people and their accounting and all their their folks and advisors working hard to get the deal closed, And then the deal closes and you're working with a new team in terms of the uh, company that you just bought. Many times they have a controller or people on the ground that have had their own relationships with providers. And it's really important to make sure that as you're introducing your new advisors as the buyer, your new accounting firm, or your new insurance firm or attorneys that, that that's handled really sensitively because many times, the folks at the target company have relationships with those, those prior people. And what we really think works best is to have a, an intro call really like uh, walk through it with the new people. So they, they feel like they're supported. They've got clear people they can contact. And so they know, Hey, if they have an insurance question, here's exactly who to go to. I, I think just having that introduction, making sure it's, Everyone feels comfortable and on the same page about the plan going forward, for example, for the accounting or for the insurance or the, the legal. That's really critical. And if that step is skipped, it's just a lot of confusion and it can be frustration for, for the new owner and, and their, their new team. Uh, and so it's, it's something we see a lot and we're really trying to be sensitive about, make sure that we come in and we're really great because we, we represent the new owner and we want to make a, a great impression with their new team. And uh, you kind of can't skip that step. Yeah, certainly. Thanks, August. To learn
0: more about Oberly Risk strategies, please reach out to August directly at august.felker at Oberly Risk.com and visit their website at Oberly Risk.com. I also want to thank our other sponsors, Hood and Strong and Ravix Group, for supporting the show. And now to the episode. What roles did you find the most fun and interesting throughout your career? We're talking about controllers have to love like the reconciliation process. I'd be curious, what, what roles in particular did you really thoroughly enjoy?
1: Yeah, I
2: mean, I think your listeners are going to be the poorer for not having listened to that last 30 seconds on reconciliations and debits and credits. <laughs> um, I mean, we can, re, we can replay that if you'd like. I mean, I, I think about finance people sort of in two categories. One is someone who's come up through control, maybe was, was a CPA. Or maybe just started out as a corporate controller, but it's basically got accounting in, in is their foundational skill. And on the other side, it's some form of analytics. Call it FP&A, or maybe you maybe you went to Wall Street, and you were a, a junior investment banker. I started out life as an FPA, FP&A guy, an analytics guy, and and so my you know my exposure to accounting was kind of incidental because I focused on smallish companies and, you know, I had to be able to do a journal entry. And so you started out with the question with, you know, what was the maybe most challenging or interesting thing I did? And so in 2006, I went to a company that was called Senior Whole Health. My friends sort of accused me of always working for companies that sounded like breakfast cereals, but it was a very small healthcare payer so like blue cross blue shield but it was a startup company and it was for it was specifically dedicated to people who had both medicare and medicaid and so these are older people with really limited financial means and it was the most challenging and rewarding eight years of my of my professional career i arrived there and You know, it was it was just a shitstorm. I mean, nothing nothing worked. And you know, every time I we were talking about reconciliations earlier, every time I looked at reconciliation, it it was flawed in some way. And and you know, I literally had to start from from the absolute bottom. And not only did I do journal entries for the first six months, I did every journal entry. And this was my first exposure to healthcare. I knew nothing about healthcare. You know, I had been to business school, and I was like, "How hard can this be? It's just another industry." Well, healthcare is there's a, there's a lot to healthcare that I, I learned, and I, you know, probably went home for with for six months. I went home every night with this pounding headache. But much like what I'm doing now in the search fund world, it was just sort of like we just put one foot in front of another reconcile, you know, cash disbursements to your claim system, even if it has to be done in Microsoft Excel. And, you know, then move on to, you know, what's happening with revenue and how come revenue does not equal cash receipts. And you know, it's like, oh my God, this is painful. But several years later, I mean, we were a middle-sized, profitable healthcare payer. And and we had and good analytics. We had an actuarial team. I mean, it was, we were doing some really exciting stuff and, and so super rewarding for me.
0: How did the team you were on change over that time?
2: Uh, this is sort of classic growth oriented company. When I, when I started there, we were probably 17 million in sales. When I left, it might've been just under 400 million. So when I started it was myself and and a half-time person who was i think an english major from the university of alabama and uh, i mean and everywhere i turned i was like i don't know if you know i'm pretty sure i don't have the credentials to do this work i'm not sure you do either <laughs>
1: and,
2: <laughs> and you know i i would get in front of the board and literally just lived in fear of somebody saying are we really making any money? Because I, I just, I had no idea. And you know, I, like, I was not confident in revenue at all. And I was even less confident in claims payments and disbursements and the matching of the two was like, there was no hope that the two were matched. Long story short, we had built, uh, the company had built its own software, its own claim software, its own credentialing software, its own, Provider database software. Over time, we replaced all that stuff. I hired people who were better at each of the individual functions than I could ever be. You know, hired a good controller, hired a good head of FPNA, I hired an actuary. And, you know, after a couple of years, the things we were working on were fun, right? They were, hey, what is the profitability of a specific member type? Someone who was in a nursing home versus someone who was. Could be in a nursing home, but was at home with lots of individualized and expensive care was it was that more quote unquote profitable less profitable I mean we would break things down by ethnicities and neighborhoods so for me again, that circles back to where we started, which is I was an analyst at heart right i i found those projects like super interesting, and I could spend forever drilling into them
0: yeah you got to have, you got to move up in and- interesting work over time above just doing the the journal entries yeah totally totally what other favorite CFO roles have you held you know I did
2: sort of uh, like off the beaten track role. the last one the last one I did which might seem a little like it did not connect to prior work I guess I had a little bit of a history of, of, of doing that kind of thing. I, I was the CFO of a company called Hydro and started there very much, started of their part-time consulting because I was, I had just left the healthcare gig and at the time it was only 10 people. This was a company that was building a, a rowing machine. So very much a, a Peloton style rowing machine. So a, uh, 22-inch touchscreen at the front of of a rowing screen with a and uh, I mean it was the is the coolest thing so the so we literally rowed on the water multiple times every day and that rowing was videoed and then you know up you know streamed to Amazon web services and then streamed and streams down to your individual rowing machine. And so you could row along and in and synchronized with someone who's actually rowing on a waterway. And so we started out here in the Charles River. We also had a location down and because it got cold in the wintertime in Boston. We had a location down in, in Miami as well. And you know, ultimately they branched out and we were doing things down on on uh, on the west coast and in the UK, etc. But it was it was so totally a cons, you know a consumer product a subscription product you focus you're focused on acquisition of new customers and retention um, and, and coupled with the complexity of having to build something in Taiwan and ship it from Taiwan to the west coast and then from the west coast out to individual consumers homes and get get them installed so a complex business model but also also a Complicated set of operating systems, which then translated into complicated finances.
0: One thing you, you, we were talking about earlier too, is over time you've developed this kind of framework for the CFO mentality of kind of constant inspection and improvement, a couple other things too. I'd love to hear you dive into that mentality a little bit.
2: Sure. Yeah. You know, it's funny as I have. Gotten further along in my career, I won't say old Alex. You know, I sort of simplified what, you know, sort of simplified away some of the basic skills like that we were talking about before. You know, uh, Microsoft Excel, debits and credits, et cetera, and then focused more on what are the underpinnings of what ends up in the financial statements, right? And so the like the financial statement review process at the end of an accounting period is. Hey, you know, do, do I believe this? Do I believe revenue is up X percent? If if revenue is up X percent, how come gross profit is not up X percent? And so those sort of a drill down analytic approach to to the financial statements, but then you know clearly what the underpinnings for that are are really the operations. What's, hap- what's happening? You know, in my earlier illustration with Senior Whole Health. It was it was all about well how many new enrollees did we have for the month, and what was the average revenue per enrollee? Those things ought to move in some sort of in a synchronized fashion, and so you can envision doing that on a sort of very very granular level. You know, early on in the evolution of a company, you're doing it at a at, a, at the t- like top level and nothing more, and then later on in life, as you get you know, more control over the operations you're doing at a, at a at a really granular level. I mean, I think the second thing is, and it's it applies to both kind of the senior whole health experience, but also the search fund world, is is just building a culture where you're where you're improving a lot and improving constantly, both in small both in small ways and in in big ways, and. For a lot of reasons, I mean, mostly because things are a mess when you start. In a search fund, you know, in a search fund illustration, there's a chance that the organization's been undermanaged for years, maybe even decades. And so you have people who have been around for a long time; they may be great, but they may not. You have software that's been around for a long time. Same is true. I mean, your processes are unlikely to be the most efficient ever, they're unlikely to be documented. Everything needs to be improved. And some things can be improved easily. Some things take, you know, there's a lot of lead time. You want to put a claim system in a in a healthcare payer, you better set aside, you know, a year and a lot of money and and the lives of, you know, half a dozen people in order to get that to happen. So improvement is sort of a requirement. It's also It's also a cultural thing and it's something that I think employees, employees love, right? So, so if you've been around doing the same damn thing for, you know, for years and no one's ever paid attention to your process and it's just been repeated and you've had ideas for how to improve it forever and no one cares, that's a bad place to be. So everyone welcomes the, the improvement culture.
0: How do you prioritize, maybe this is getting into a, a deeper topic on kind of the, the timeline for the financial department improvement after an acquisition, but what kinds of refinements improvements and things are you doing early on versus kind of like later stage as kind of the basics are being ironed out?
2: Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Okay. I see. I see why you questioned yourself while you were asking that question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. In, in in my experience, early on, there's a big kind of uh, build integrity in the process. Focus, so meaning that you know the numbers are right, and that promotes confidence. You know, confidence in the organization. When you're talking about financial performance, it also promotes confidence at at, at the board level and the investor level, which which is. Critically important, I mean you can't too many companies spend too much time in that unpleasant zone where you know there's a lot of silence in the boardroom as you present information <laughs> <laughs> because people are people are afraid to ask questions because they know you don't have the answer or they suspect you have an answer they're not going to like that I think is the early the early process building integrity in the financial statements and Building financial statements that are insightful. So, if this is a gross profit driven business, we'll highlight gross profit and and cost of goods sold and and margin. And if it's margin by by segment or by client, then then obviously do that. I mean, I you know again, my personal experience later you know later on, you know, the improvement opportunities tend to be kind of massive big scale long lead time often software oriented where you you know you say to yourself you know we have too much labor associated with this or the current software approach we have is just it's leaky i mean we know it it works but it sort of smokes and and no accountant would lo- love the you know the process of reconciling
0: these numbers maybe we can dive into that timeline a little bit more you talked about whether it's a search fund acquisition or private equity acquisition, there's kind of a, a number of phases to focus on as you kind of the new ownership takes over for that business. Again, there's that due diligence, immediate after close, kind of 30 to 90 days after. Can you kind of walk through those phases and what are like the most important priorities along each phase? You know, I guess you've sort of laid
2: out Three or four, you know, key key timeframes for a search fund company. When I think about finance and a search fund company, I have not been a searcher, so I've certainly done participated in acquisitions. So the first, you know, I think the first phase is is the the due diligence process, the probably the post letter of intent time frame and pre close. And I can only envision that a you know a prospective entrepreneur, CEO of a search fund company is doing a million things, right? He's trying to solidify a transaction, trying to develop a relationship of trust and confidence with the seller, but also drilling into everything, every bit of information he can possibly get from the organization and forming opinions about does this correspond with my expectation for the business and what i you know what make what makes this business attractive to me but from a pure finance perspective the things i would focus on are how easy is it to get information from the business you know when you say Hey, I'd love to see a uh, you know set of financial statements with 13 columns, you know, one one for each of the last 13 year 13 months, so that I can, you know, look at seasonality, where I can look at year-over-year growth in the most current month. Is that met with sure I'll have it for you, you know, this afternoon, or is that met with, you know, I gotta talk to IT? You know, that's that's, that's obviously an indication of. Where the organization and the capability is, and when you get the income statement and the balance sheet, how well laid out is it is it Does it look like it's the canned report that that is the first thing that you get out you know out of QuickBooks when you push the button for produce financial statements and it's never there's no level of customization to the business or the industry or you know the preferences of the c e o or investors. You know, all all of these things are indications of a your software capability, b your focus on finance, c your the staff you have assigned to the tasks of finance. Many of these companies, I mean, asking questions like "Gee, do you have an accounting close schedule?" Most often, the answer to that question is going to be no at this this stage with these with these smallish companies. But it's still an interesting question to to ask. And anyway, so the you know the process. This process, I think, for the C, for the prospective CEO is is has got to be an evaluation of, gee, a number of potential alternatives here. One is, gee, I love the finance organization. They're fabulous. They, look at look at the quality of the outputs. If only I could retain these people post acquisition. I'd be all set. The opposite end of the spectrum is, oh, my God. You know, the software implementation is horrible. The quality of the financial statements is highly suspect. Uh, you know, the, the person who's doing all the work is an office manager and he or she, you know, is the first person to raise their hand and say, I am totally inappropriate for this task. <laughs> and once that you have that judgment in hand, then then obviously that you know that's got to set in motion a, a planning process for what happens post
0: close. Once you have like folks who are qualified and feel up to the task for the different parts of that of that finance team, what's that next stage look like? What's that high performing finance team look like? What are some key components and elements of a team like that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think we're I think we're sort of skipping over a little. I mean I would say the next stage that I see for these companies for these acquisitions is really one of like oh my god I I just closed and what do I do now and you know if if you've ever I've had the opportunity in sort of emergency situations over the last couple of years to be involved at that time frame with with these companies the amount of things that are happening is just astonishing. I mean, so you know, the CEO walks in and is now the CEO of this search fund company, right? And and they're now in charge. And purely on the finance side, they've got to they've got to take over a set of financial statements. They may or may not have a person to do that. They may have to hire somebody immediately, like a controller is often is often the next the next step. But then the set of activities is, you know, a complicated task of you know, how do I get to an opening balance sheet? How do I allocate the purchase price to the assets that have been acquired? The investors are cr- are screaming for the, an initial budget for the year, especially if it's late in the year. You know, a budget for the for the coming year. You know, the my first board meeting is in sixty days. My first lender package has to be produced in ninety days. All of this stuff has to happen, (laughs) and and the you know one of the things that's that's obviously important here is what is what is the skill set of the CEO if he or she has no support. They better be a, you know, an ex investment banker or, or someone who's highly skilled in Microsoft Excel or has, you know, has, has the skills to really assist in that process. So that's like, that's what I would say is the next phase of this is how do you survive that process of the first 90 days? And, you know, maybe I've sort of skipped over like the most important thing, which is how do you not screw up the, client side of this, sending out invoices and receiving cash, right? That that has to, <laughs> that, that's like absolutely critical. The number one thing, everything else, everything else, you can sort of get to it when you have the time and resources, but, but not disturbing that client relationship and the cash flow is obviously, is obviously critical. So I know I didn't answer your question, but I thought I, I answered a better question, Alec.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, that's obviously a critical piece is keeping invoicing and the client side going, are there other critical pieces that really cannot be pushed off? I imagine like cash management and having working capital in place is another big one, but any other components that are priority number one before moving on to others?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think all of the, the, the things that I've listed that sort of fall into the next category, you know, the send out the invoices, don't disrupt the client process don't disrupt cash it's number one everything else falls into this bucket of well you better you better get this done in a timely way whatever that means for you and your company and your resources if that's 30 days 60 days 90 days because you have you just have to get some of those things off your plate so that you can begin to work on your business the initial balance sheet is incredibly important, but you're not gonna, you can't get that done until you get the valuation of the business done so you know how to add the, so you know how to allocate assets and liabilities to, to the various assets and liabilities that you acquired. so that that's going to take you know a little bit of time, but until you, you know, so until you get the initial balance sheet, the valuation done, and your initial set of financial statements out. You're going to be preoccupied with this stuff, which is fundamentally not terribly productive for where you're going as a business, right? You kind of, after that happens, then then there'll be a huge and immediate focus on reporting, not the cruddy reporting that that you may have inherited, but the, the reported the reporting that professional investors are used to seeing, right? And that's going to be a challenge for you to do. Your bankers may want slightly different reporting than your investors. I don't think it's necessarily hard. It's just time consuming. And it comes at a time when there are a million things that are requiring your attention. So get just getting through that period, making sure that you have the right resources, even if it's sort of expensive, short-term resources, so that you can get through it quickly, so that at the end of the day, the investors say, oh my God, look at this, a set of financial statements we trust, we believe in them, you know, clap, 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 this is wonderful, so many of our search fund companies take a year to get this done. When you get to that point, whether it's 90 days, you know, 180 days, it's, Life is going to be better at the other side of it because all these activities will drop off.
0: So, okay, so then, once you've gotten there, where do you go from there? What's next?
2: Yeah, I, I think obviously it's a better place. That's a that's a better place to be on the finance side. And it's just my view is is it's sort of you're you're not in as much of a crisis. You're focused on continual improvement efficiency getting your reporting done faster getting it done better getting it done in a in a more insightful fashion and beginning to work on your analytics whether it's you know on the fpa side of the house whether it's a budget or a long term model focusing on your pricing you know and then then i think at some point you probably begin to think about staffing and do you have the right level of staffing or type of staffing does it match properly with the business that you're in and these things those questions typically get answered after you know nine months a year 18 months when sort of the fog of the immediate acquisition has lifted and it's you know you've been through a few board meetings and you've presented your reporting and you've taken the feedback and you realize kind of where you have to where you have to head that may or may not result in a software change and a lot of these companies have Microsoft or pardon me have QuickBooks which is cheap and easy but you know it has limitations and your business may be one of those where where you're better served by something else
0: I assume most companies probably don't have a CFO upon acquisition when you go to hire CFO or director of finance, depending on you kind know, of what stage your company is at. What are key character? You've been a part of a lot of these hiring processes. What What are key characteristics you look for in those types of hires? You know, there. So sort of the basic human characteristics that are important,
2: which maybe fall under the, the the banner of chemistry. And you know, if the CFO is going to be a key part of your your senior team there has to be great chemistry with the ceo there needs there probably should be good chemistry with with other members of the senior team so you know that's that's hurdle one on the finance side i would say there has to be a match between where you are as an organization and what your needs are as as an organization in finance terms so if if it's a really accounting driven organization and where debits and credits are absolutely vital. Maybe you need somebody with with an accounting background. If that's not true, if you're if you are you know going back to my senior whole health illustration where analytics and actuarial work is kind of you know driving decision making, then maybe you need someone with more of an fp a analytic background. And usually for these organizations, you're you're in this funny place where you've got a small team and. Uh, you know, the team can be one often, or the team can be two or three. So, what that implies, that implies a lot, right? It implies somebody, you're, you're hiring somebody who's willing to do anything to get the job done, willing to roll up their sleeves, who's not afraid to do a journal entry, who's not afraid to say, gee, our income statement needs to be tweaked. Maybe I could do that myself by writing a report in in this software that's not the CFO of a public company, right? That's not the, <laughs> so these are these are small companies, hopefully growing companies, always resource constraints. You, you, you're gonna need somebody who's sort of a jack of all trades, can get their hands dirty and be grubby, but also somebody who can be effective in talking to the board. So it's a difficult set of constraints. You know, when I look at people, I, I always, you know, I look for people who who have demonstrated intellect, who are articulate, who have some level of humility. And there's evidence. There's evidence, not not just hey, I, you know, I'll I I like to roll up my sleeves, but there's some evidence in their background where that actually is true.
0: Yeah, I remember in a accounting internship, doing all kinds of different things like there was a small software business in portland and i would call in accounts receivable and then the next day we'd be looking at our financial statements and like footing every table in our you know 14 page report i remember catching like united states was spelled wrong as like united states or something like that so like yeah small things like that and then moving up to you know putting a report together for you know what software should we use so definitely all up and down the the range is, is certainly certainly a requirement for that more strategic role that that cfo role not necessarily even just at a public company but just at a larger company what does that person's set of tasks look like what makes that role more strategic and less once they're like not in the weeds you don't have to do journal entries anymore what does that role start to resemble
2: yeah mean,
0: i think and
2: at that level, you're talking some, but not somebody who's a roll up your sleeves, do the journal entry guy, but who's a manager, right? Who's who's going to hire and retain the right people, who can motivate people, can you know? In my personal opinion, sort of focus other people in the organization on improvement, not just themselves, and create situations where your controller or your your vp of finance are are getting wins whether it's you know our close process is now three days and it you know it gives us 17 other business days to do real work as opposed to just do the accounting you know or or we've implemented some exciting new fpna software and the process of getting from closed financial statements to a board package is now two days instead of five days so other people are getting wins on a pure finance basis but also you've now got an organization that can help in business decisions around the company so that so that there are people who are your other senior leaders your head of finance or your head of technology want your vp of finance in the room when they're making a big decision on a piece of software or a new facility or you know whatever the business decision is that's a very different set of activities, and you you know it's a so the CFO is a is a manager and leader in the organization, more externally focused, more should be more focused on reading trade press, understanding competitive products, understanding sort of risks along that dimension rather than you know do we have the latest release of of QuickBooks up and running?
0: <laughs> yeah, certainly. What are things you noticed yourself about moving to a CFO role at the various companies you've been in? Like are there any particular discoveries personally you've had about the role that you found interesting or remarkable?
2: You know, it's it's a it's a good question. I I the, the first thought that pops into my mind is how helpless you can feel. And if you don't, you know, it's like I remember going to business school and taking all these organizational behavior courses and thinking this is this is really just b s this is you know I you know you're you're wasting my time it really is true those those it turns out that's you know the the sort of motivational who the people are their motivations it's what drives businesses and you know so you you find yourself in a senior leadership role whether it's finance or anything else and you know, you look around, you see problems, you see issues and you say to yourself, well, that doesn't just doesn't seem that hard to fix. Why does that problem still exist? And, you know, the answer is because you you aren't the person who's going to fix it. Someone else is going to fix it. And, you know, you haven't established that as a goal. You haven't supported them with the the knowledge or the training or the tools to 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 actually fix it. And and so here you sit in your office with all these brilliant ideas, but they're not adequate to develop forward motion in the business. <laughs> so uh, that's sort of like key learning number one for me when, when you got into a larger organization where you just didn't like get up from your chair and do something yourself.
0: What common mistakes do you see CEOs making or CFOs making either either side in these small companies, you know, within a couple of years after acquisition or merely, maybe more recent
1: too?
2: You know, I would say it's common not to take this, the the bit of advice about getting the basics right quickly and to deliver information that is not quite right. Isn't reconciled. Isn't sliced the way that people would like to see it in your reporting, you know. Or maybe, maybe you've got you know, my uh, QuickBooks is getting the job done, but you know, really, what we'd really like to do is have a medical a facility company, and we'd really like to see a set of financial statements facility by facility. And to, you know, that's really hard in. in in QuickBooks, but it would be a lot easier if you had Sage. But it's going to cost more money, and it you know may may require somebody who knows more about software, ERP software, than we have internally, and so you know it can't be prioritized this year. I, I see a a lot of that. Thinking about finance in kind of a cost control way, as opposed to delivering information in an efficient way that's going to. Allow everybody to make better decisions, so I say that's a sort of the biggest the biggest thing I see in this uh, you know that i that I would call an
0: error when you think of the best finance teams you've been a part of what made them so effective
2: i guess i i I'd again go back to my time in in healthcare with this with this payer and to be honest, it's not clear to me in retrospect. Now it's been 10 years or so, it's not clear to me in retrospect that I had some brilliant strategy for for doing this, but I did end up hiring people who were better than I was. And uh, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people say say that. But you know, I remember one of my first hires was someone who had an FPA background. And, a generalist FP&A background and absolutely no healthcare experience. And I remember sitting down with her and like going through the financial statements and saying, you know, this, this is the way a set of financial statements look in healthcare. And, you know, we don't talk about cost of goods sold. We talk about medical expense ratio. And, you know, they're sort of the same thing, but, you know, don't use the cost of goods sold language here. And, you know, and I remember thinking to myself, you know, I hope I hired. The right person here. I hired her essentially for intellect, and she had a lot of good experience. It turned out she was just super curious, super talented, hardworking, great interpersonally. I discovered she was a fabulous negotiator, and and you know just took to it naturally. You know, within the first year, she probably saved us a million dollars in in insurance, which is a big deal stop loss insurance for a healthcare company. And yeah, so I didn't know if she had those skills, but I mean, it turns out she, like, and she was a talented lady. I did the exact same thing on the actuarial side. And I just ended up learning a ton from my actuary, who was a very young, very smart woman, very ambitious. And, you know, you get to a point where like, you have a few people like that working for you. And, you know, you say to yourself, well, this is wonderful. <laughs> I, I, you know, I have to give myself so much credit for hiring great people. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's super fun getting to work with with people like that who are just super curious and want to learn as quickly as possible. Any last pieces of advice for CEOs developing their, their finance team?
2: You know, it's a little bit of a, a rehash of what I said earlier, probably, but I think while there are a million things going on for a young CEO, getting the finances, including team and, and analytics, et cetera, getting them right early will will end up being leverage that you will appreciate in the business as you, as you uh, proceed down the path.
0: That's great. Mike, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been really good to see you and chat a little bit. Next time I'm in Boston, I'll let you know. Maybe we can meet up. During that time, but it's really good to see you. Good to meet you. And thanks for sharing your time. Likewise. Enjoyed it, Alex. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Think Like an Owner. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Hood and Strong, Oberly Risk Strategies, and Ravix Group for supporting the podcast. For full episode transcripts in our weekly newsletter, please visit our website at tlaopodcast.com. podcast.com